Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Coast to Coasties podcast. This week, I am privileged to say that I am introducing this as MST3 Jackamuzzi, which I have yet to be able to do. So it's kind of nice to be able to say that A school is complete. As you can tell by the microphone, too, we're back to using the normal microphone. And we have excellent guests lined up this week because I am touring the recruiting office in Portland, Maine. And what that allows me to do is interview basically everyone in the office, get their perspectives on different fields. So today I have a very special guest with me to start out, and he's going to introduce himself now. Hello, uh, my name is Justin Basham. I am a Marine Science Technician first class. I've been in the Coast Guard for just over 12 years now. I have a lot of experience in different fields within the Marine Science Technician rating. And yeah, excited to take some time and talk about um, some areas that I've worked in and some areas I've kind of specialized in. So with starting out, what got you interested in joining the Coast Guard? So I joined the Coast Guard at 27 years old, which is a little older than, than some people, but you can be older than that now and still join. And yeah, I had gone to some college, didn't complete college. I had tried a number of different jobs and, and found some success and, and some that weren't so great, but nothing that I would call like a career path. And uh, just kind of started thinking in my mid-20s, like I needed to make a change, get on an actual career path that would provide more upward mobility, better benefits. And I wanted to work in a field in environmental science. And I didn't have a degree in that area, and I didn't have any resume or work experience in uh, environmental science fields. And I I grew up very civically minded in my youth. I'm an Eagle Scout, and I'd kind of just got away from that. And I started to think... I want money to finish college. I need health care and a career path. And uh, I'd like to give something back and serve my country, kind of get back to that civic-mindedness. And then also work in an environmental science field without really any kind of resume to warrant being able to do that yet. And then looking at the Coast Guard and seeing, uh, oh, I could be a marine science technician and I would be able to work in these fields that I'd like to break into. And they're going to teach me everything I need to know to be able to do that. And then I can kind of eventually someday take those Coast Guard skills and training and uh, parlay them into some other future environmental career as well. So it sounds like you knew when you joined that you wanted to be a marine science technician right from the get-go. Yeah. Before I even talked to my recruiter, I was pretty sure that I, I wanted to be a marine science technician. I'd done my homework and looked into the different rates. And then at the time I joined, I joined in 2011. And so it was a pretty long wait for MST school at that time. And so that did give me time to be able to observe other rates and uh, kind of be sure that that was the path that I wanted to wait for. And where were you stationed as a non-rate? So right out of boot camp, I went to a small boat station in Fort Pierce, Florida. So about two hours north of Miami on the Atlantic coast, about as far north as you could be and still be considered South Florida. So we did a lot of mom and pop boardings, we called them, uh, just like recreational boater boardings, search and rescue. And then, of course, uh, down in that area, you do you know, drug and, and migrant interdiction as well. Well, I've noticed uh, I went on migrant interdictions on my cutter as well down in Key West area. Mm-hmm. And it's just constant now. So I assume you're staying pretty busy with all that stuff there. Did you have an opportunity to get away from that kind of line of work and tour with some MSTs while you were waiting on the list, maybe like a temporary duty to an MST station at all? Yeah, so there were some. So just to the south of us, there's MST Lake Worth. 
And so I eventually was able to kind of do some cooperative efforts with them to where if there was like a report of pollution or something, it was closer in my area than instead of them having to come up from Lake Worth. I was, you know, if I could go and get eyes on scene and take pictures and send it to them. And even though I didn't have any formal MST training at that time, I could kind of act as a field observer and, and feed information back to them so that they could make choices on uh, their response strategies or if they needed to come and do something on scene or not. Well, Also with that, too, is what I want to share with the viewers is that TDY, what we just talked about, means that MST-1 was not an MST yet. He was still a non-rate at this time, but he was able to work with the MST unit near him to be able to get some experience before going to A school, which is a pretty neat opportunity to be able to take advantage of, regardless of where you are in the country, if your command allows it. So keep that in mind for when you end up going through the process if you want to be an MST. Yeah, I think the biggest thing there is that for those in the audience who, if that's kind of where they're at, is still figuring their their path into the Coast Guard and and checking things out beforehand. When you get into that position, just being a strong performer, showing that you care and you're tackling all of your current responsibilities, whatever your primary duties are, and just being a strong performer so that your command will be able to have confidence in signing off on you going to do some of that extra work. First, do a really good job at what you're tasked with within your command. And then once they see that you care, that you're a good performer, then any good command should sign off on letting you go and shadow some people or do some cooperative effort in the rates that you're interested in. And then you ended up going to MSTA school. You said the wait was long. How long did you have to wait to go to school, roughly? I was probably on the list for almost two and a half years, something like that. And that was after the four months required at your first unit before you can put your name on the right. list. Right, yeah. Where back then, I think you had to be qualified to put your name on the well, list. Well, so there's, you know, this is where you get into a little bit of what's policy versus what, how those things get put into practice at various units. So some commands, they have a philosophy where, you know, right after this four months, put your name on the list, especially if it's a long um, mm-hmm. list. Others, you know, you think about it when a command endorses your request to have your name put on a school list. Like if that list were to clear right away, I mean, that's like that command signing off to say this person is ready to be a petty officer. I believe this person's ready to, to serve in that capacity to step up to the next level of responsibility. And so I can understand how some commands, they do want to see a member get fully qualified. So for me, that was, um, you know, I was a qualified communications watchstander. I was qualified as a boat crew member on our 25 and our 33 and our 45, and then qualified also as a, as a boarding team member for law enforcement. So, Okay, so you're then able to put your name on the list. You waited two and a half years. That's actually, wow, that's a year more than I waited. Mm-hmm. So I guess times are short now, but maybe it's just a cycle thing. Yeah, it goes in waves. Do you end up going to A school? Mm-hmm. What did you think of A school, the experience going there? It's a lot of information. It's not like boot camp. You have a lot more freedom, obviously, but it is still regimented, and that's your job, that's your duty, is to be there and and be a student. So you do need to take it seriously. It's not like being at college or something. You know, you're still in the military, but it is fun, and it is sort of your first footsteps into the world of work that you've chosen for yourself within the Coast Guard. So hopefully that's for everybody, it's something that they're enjoying learning about, especially after waiting a couple years to, to be able to go and start taking those steps into doing the work that I had wanted to do, the work I signed up to do. That was very exciting. Yeah, and it is a lot of information, but just like boot camp, it's tough, but nobody there wants to see you fail. Everybody there wants to 
come around and support you and, and figure out how can we make this a success for this person. Well, your friend MST1 Evans used to say clear as mud when we were learning new stuff because mm-hmm. they were feeding us through a fire hose, like you are saying. There's yeah. so much information in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I remember us sitting there in class and looking out the windows and seeing the Bosomate classes, you know, marching back to barracks already, and we were still there kind of pouring over our CFRs and international regs and things like that for hours <laughs> into the afternoon after the BM kids had already been cut from their class. And yeah, but that's that's what it takes to kind of digest all the information. Those are the so you could work hard in A school and party the rest of your career or party in A school and work hard the rest of your career. <laughs> yeah, probably find a balance of both in both places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you end up leaving A school. Where did you end up getting stationed after A school? I went straight to Sector Long Island Sound in New Haven, Connecticut. I went into the IMD shop there. And so very first thing, I'm getting my pollution qual. And it was a small shop. At the time, we were paired up with the enforcement. So we were kind of, you'll, you'll find different units are, are divided differently. Some, some units will put all the MSTs together in a bullpen, both response and prevention MSTs. Initially, at Sector Long Island Sound, the response MSTs were put with response personnel, like enforcement you know, MEs and, and BOSA mates and wow. GMs, and then prevention were down the hall separately. Then we did a number of changes over the years for cross-training and then ultimately ended up in a bullpen altogether. But yeah, I, I was at Long Island Sound. That was great. Got my pollution qual. And then as a third class, had a good relationship with the command and they uh, endorsed me working on my FOSER qual as a third class and got that and went into facilities got my facilities qual and I started on Port State there but I got called back in because I had an FOSER qual for my final year there at Sector Long Island Sound they asked if I'd go back into response to help out with the IMD rotation and so I, I did that I like response work and so I was happy to do that and help out the the team well, so we talked with MST1 Register and Senior Chief Gray in the last episode, kind of about the different shops and roles each shop has. We didn't delve too much into specifics of it, though. So you having the FOSCR qual and the uh, response field that you like, mm-hmm. could you delve a little bit more as to, for someone who might be interested in potentially going to MST, doesn't know too much about the response field? what that stands for and sure. what your responsibilities are as a pollution responder. Yeah, so so you come out of A school and you kind of have just like the basic level of knowledge in kind of all MST things, right? And then pollution is typically, depending on the needs of whatever unit you go to, you could end up in a facility shop or a port state shop. But a lot of units will see pollution as kind of like the lower hanging fruit. It's sort of just like one of the the easiest kind of first quals for a a young MST to to kind of cut their teeth on. And so as a pollution responder, you are, you're just that, you know, you get a report of a pollution incident, could be oil, could be hazardous substances or something, and you go out and you investigate. And you kind of know the base level of authority and jurisdiction. So where can we exercise our authority as the Coast Guard? Where are those navigable waterways of the United States within your area of responsibility? So kind of like where can we exercise that muscle that we have? And then knowing some basic response strategies, being able to go on scene, collect information. You know, we talk about the five elements, having a, uh, you know, a discharge of, of oil or release of a hazardous substance from a known source on a navigable waterway of the United States. 
with a known responsible party. And if you have all those five elements, then we are like congressionally mandated to take an enforcement action. And so as a pollution responder, you're doing that. You're going out, you're assessing a scene for safety and for environmental hazards. You're collecting information in your investigation. You're seeing, do I have all of the five elements? You're piecing that all together. You're also collecting evidence, whether that's uh, photographic or witness statements, things like that. Very rarely would we take physical evidence, but we could sometimes take oil samples if we needed to try to match something. And then you put all that casework together and then you do a lot of missile work in the computer to kind of document it all. And then you route that up either for a warning or whatever appropriate level of enforcement action is warranted. And that's kind of your basic level as a pollution responder. And then once you transition to being a federal on-scene coordinator representative, that's, that's the FOSCR. So the captain of the port is typically designated as the federal on-scene coordinator within all of our different sectors in the Coast Guard. And so that federal on-scene coordinator can delegate down their authority to their representatives. That's why there's a federal on-scene coordinator representative. And so what that qualification sort of enables you to do or what you have to kind of be able to do to earn that is you you know much more in-depth knowledge about the different framework of response, the national contingency plan, your area contingency plans, and you're working more closely with like the regional response teams and you know our strike teams and other government agencies whether that's NOAA the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration or the EPA you're kind of like flexing these connections and these uh, these partnerships more to be able to coordinate to take that lead role in a larger scale response mm. or in a response where there is no responsible party that we can compel to take action for themselves and then the other big thing is is that it enables us to be able to open up federal pollution funds, to access monies, to be able to hire contractors ourselves. And then there's a whole sort of segment of knowledge that has to do with overseeing those contractors, whether it's the work that they're doing, the strategies that they're taking, clocking their time, you know, on and off the job and all the different equipment and personnel that they're using. Also being aware of the different safety regulations, whether that's OSHA standards, or HAZWOPER training or um, dive certifications and, and just all these different kinds of elements that we have to that come into play when you're keeping a team of contractors safe there on scene. You're doing a lot with ICS, you're, you're shaking a lot of hands, which is valuable networking and experience, professional growth, just engaging with a lot of people from different backgrounds, different areas of expertise so that we can kind of bring all of the best knowledge and best resources and people to bear on whatever problem is that we're looking to tackle. And you're in that kind of that point position, that coordinator role to kind of tie it all together. Well, I've heard with that qual as well, once you get the federal on-scene coordinator representative is you get assigned to a lot of spills that may happen. They may pull you from your unit to go and help out. So you can volunteer to go down and help out with those incidents as well if they're big enough to warrant pulling people from other units to come and help out, such as Deepwater Horizon, for instance. Yeah, so Deepwater Horizon was before my time, but that's true. You know, with a with an FOSCR qual, you certainly fit the bill to be placed in those roles when those missions come up. You don't have to be an FOSCR to get deployed to a hurricane response, but if you have pollution responder and FOSCR, then obviously you're going to be 
kind of plug and play into different roles and you're going to be more of an asset on scene there. So, so I, you know, I raised my hand and, and I, I got sent a number of times. I went on two different deployments to the Virgin Islands after Hurricanes Irma and Maria blew through there. And then I went for six weeks to North Carolina after Hurricane Florence hit there. And then I, I, I went twice, um, not for hurricanes, but, uh, you know, if you think about just the ICS training and the, and the experience um, being plugged into incident command systems, partnering with other government agencies and that sort of thing, kind of knowing how to fit into those systems. I went on two separate deployments for, for five weeks each time to, uh, to the southwest border, once to New Mexico and once to Arizona to work with Border Patrol and uh, help our, our humanitarian aid mission in the Border Patrol stations. Did you never think as an MST to get deployed to Arizona? That's quite amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's no water in Arizona, but your calls and training still benefit the mission greatly down there. Yeah, well, and all, even aside from the Border Patrol mission, when I was in San Diego, we had some facilities that we regulated out on Lake Powell and Lake Mead. One was a, a passenger vessel that gave like tourist cruises out there to Hoover Dam. And, uh, and then another one was a, just a tiny little fuel dock out on, lake, on, on uh, lake Powell. And so because those lakes have shorelines that border on multiple states, that gives us jurisdiction. And of course they connect the Colorado River. So we have, mm. yeah, so it's, it's considered a navigable waterway of the United States. We have jurisdiction as, as uh, the U.S. Coast Guard. And so transfers of, of oil or hazardous substance over the water, we regulate that. And, uh, and you know, passenger vessel facilities, they have their, you know, uh, MTSA regulations that they have to comply with also. And then would you say as a pollution responder, it sounds like you're pretty active in that role too, that you're not just sitting behind a desk at the office, you're out there quite a bit. Yeah, I would say that about, yeah, I, I couldn't put a percentage on it. You know, but part of the job is definitely out in the field, either doing you know, some kind of response work for a disaster or just for a sheen that got called in at a, at a you know, recreational marina or what have you. So, yeah, there's plenty of time or, you know, getting out and doing harbor patrols, looking, you know, just kind of having eyes on the water and uh, going out and seeing what you're going to see is, is a really you know, valuable way of just learning your area of responsibility getting out, talking to people in the marinas, learning things from the community. Yeah, you don't want to just sit behind your desk all the time. You have to be behind your desk to a certain extent to do casework. you got to be back in the shop. Sometimes you encounter something out in the field. You need to come back and ask the team, kind of bounce ideas off each other, what's going to be the best way to proceed in this situation. That time in the shop is valuable and it's necessary. But the more you can be out of the office, the better. Just kind of like talking with people, hearing from the community what's going on because people they observe things they even if they don't call it in right away there's plenty of people who see things going on that maybe they would never call the national response center but if they see the coast guard out there checking things out then you know we start talking and you'll learn of other issues so and then what about if someone has interest in similar to what you had before joining the coast guard how you know environmental interests in our world that we exist in Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them Maybe they're in your same shoes. They're a little bit older, one's a stable job, and thinking about joining the Coast Guard. Currently, we're here in Recruiting Office Portland, so obviously I volunteered to be a recruiter and went through that process. I do miss kind of my field work as a marine science technician sometimes, but I'm excited to be a part of a real challenging mission right now with recruiting. 
And so I, you know, I wouldn't have volunteered to be a recruiter if I didn't believe that, that this is a great opportunity for a lot of people. I think that the environmental protection mission is one that not everybody you know, in the general public realizes that we do uh, as a Coast Guard. And so just raising awareness for people that, that if that's a line of work that I think obviously there, there are a lot of people who, uh, a lot of young people who are very concerned, rightly, mm-hmm. and motivated, who want to make some kind of difference with uh, sort of the future of our environment, <laughs> wanting to protect this planet that we have as, as much as possible. I think it's really meaningful work. I think that's a good thing for people to want to be motivated to try to make a difference in. And yeah, like just like myself, you know, all you have to do is you know, qualify for the, the rate, for the, you know, for the job your ASVAB scores and and other, be otherwise qualified to join and you have a, a track laid out ahead of you with all the you know to be paid and and given benefits and everything as a member of the military while we give you the training to turn you into a federal law enforcement official for our environmental laws and and to be able to, to step into a role like that with that sort of authority where you can make the kind of difference that you can make in this role without having a degree, without having a background in environmental science or or any kind of impressive resume. You know, I wouldn't say joining the military is ever easy. You know, it comes, it's a challenge, right? But in some ways, that's a really easy way to break into a field, a world of work that a lot of people would like to be in, and they might not be aware that that's a path to do it. Right, and they're all, those jobs in the civilian side are always looking for work experience. You can get any better experience than doing an on-job. Yeah. Yeah, I've, 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 known, I've known a number of people who wanted to do those kinds of jobs, conservation officer jobs, park ranger jobs, NOAA jobs, EPA jobs, things like that. And they didn't really have a clear path to get into those positions. And so they joined and became a marine science technician so they could build a resume to be able to get into the, the field that they really wanted to get into. So, yeah, so I, I think... I, I'm finding a really fulfilling career. I plan to do 20 years in the Coast Guard. I'm enjoying my time as a marine science technician and, you know, just for what it is. But uh, some people, you know, you don't have to stay in and do a full 20 years. You could come in, enjoy uh, working as an MST, get some qualifications, get some, some mm-hmm. training and education, and then take that into whatever is the next career step for you and and, and either way is a, is a good whatever path is right for you you know there's no wrong answer right there's tons of jobs opportunities with it final question i'll ask you just to kind of wrap things up is with this new mst rap program being thrown out there uh, coming out next year potentially uh, there's no time frame on it yet but they're talking about having students as non-rates before they come to a school go in and get on the field, like on practice training, how would you say that's going to benefit the rate, getting some of that exposure before going to A school, having gone the A school route? Yeah, you know, obviously we don't, we don't have that program in place yet. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the idea behind it. I think maybe, you know, obviously if somebody has some experience in the field before they go to A school, then that could be beneficial. Some of those concepts um, may be sort of uh, less abstract or theoretical, and you know, kind of have a, a more of a concrete place in their in their memory from mm-hmm. from hands-on experience already. One thing that I would caution is is anybody who I guess may be fortunate enough to be able to take advantage of that program. You know, when you get to A school. Don't think that you know everything. A school, there are really smart people working really hard on the curriculum and, and the way that, that, um, that it's all taught and laid out for students. 
and that's awesome if, for people to get it. You know, I, I enjoyed the experience that I got, what little bit it was with working with, with MSTs before I went to A school. I think the more the better, you know, for, to set people up for success. But when you get to school, go with the program. You will maybe have an easier time with things because of the experience you had beforehand. Just kind of let yourself fall into that seat at the desk and, and turn your brain into a sponge and trust the people who are there to lead you with the, the program that they lay out with the curriculum. Rick, as your individual unit might have had their way of collecting the oil samples, getting them ready to distribute to the lab in New London, but the way school teaches you might be a little bit different. Yeah, school school the schoolhouse is set up to teach to a, sort of a, a universal standard, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's where, you know, the hope the hope always is that the most correct, the best practices and the most correct information will sort of filter out to the rest of the field from the schoolhouse is, is the idea. And of course, you know, different kind of practices come into play at one unit or another. When I was in New Haven, Connecticut, we just drove our samples to the lab in New London. We didn't have to worry about shipping them. But that doesn't change the fact that the standard everywhere else is to ship them and the way that that happens. I think just the word, I guess, would be just like stay humble, enjoy the experience. If you get to to do that program, enjoy the experience that you get before you go to school, but stay humble once you find yourself at the schoolhouse and trust that everybody there wants to see you successful, wants to see you um, go out into the field when you leave A school and and take the best information possible to whatever unit you're going to take it to. Well, thank you again for sharing your uh, knowledge and information. I know that you were low on time today, but we extracted a lot of information in a short amount of time to give to the viewers. And just a reminder to you all, too, is that this is the same rate, marine science technician, as covered in the last episode that deals with the vessel inspections and the facility inspections. It's a very encompassing rate, and there's a lot of stuff they do. So today we highlighted the response pollution side, and it's just incredible the different paths you can take. And, you know, the longer you stay in the Coast Guard of your career, you're guaranteed to touch all of MST at some point, pretty much, unless you're just on the rivers the whole time, then maybe not Port State. But for the most part, you'll have your chance in response. So this episode benefits you to listen to if you ever do find yourself in a response shop. So, Yeah, you also, for advancement within the Marine Science Technician rating, they've set it up now so that if you, if you want to continue to advance, you will have to get sort of those kind of core qualifications. So you have to be, you know, so so pollution responder, facility inspector, and and port state control examiner. So you have to be sort of well-versed, kind of diversify your skill set to be able to to plug into uh, any unit that you, you know, the idea when you get to, you know, to the the first class and the chief level, you could be a lead petty officer, or you could be a chief over a shop, uh, or over a bullpen. And so you're going to need to have a working knowledge of the tasks that are, are being performed by the people who you are uh, supervising. And they all do feed into each other, too. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. Like, you, you know, a beautiful the, thing. When you know, right. So the more you know about vessels, the better pollution responder it makes you. The more you know about pollution, the, you know, the better facility inspector. It, mm-hmm. they, they're all, they complement each other. Yes. So if you're interested in this line of work before, during, or after listening to this episode, you're, you're entering quite an amazing field that's going to set you up for a great career. MST1 can attest to that. (laughs) So thank you again, MST1. And uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Again, as always, on the Coast to Coast Instagram page. And I can direct you to answer the right questions to the people who know best, such as MST1. (laughs) And uh, 
We hope that you have a good day and you got a lot from this episode because MSC1 has a lot of great knowledge on the pollution field, as you can tell. Well, you know, I, I have some answers and then uh, I don't have all the answers, but I know people who have more answers. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that you'll find is just, um, you know, especially when you go on these deployments and things, you know, shaking hands, meeting people, picking people's brains, make a friend. And then when you have a question, if you don't know the answer, you know, you'll have somebody who you can call. I'm in global, so if you think that I could help you, then you could reach out to me as well. I'll put that invitation there. And if I don't have an answer, then then I I probably know somebody who has an answer. If you need help finding MS21, I can also help you get in touch with them. MS21 Basham. (laughs) Find them on global. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode. We hope you got an excellent enjoyment of content from today and you learned a lot. And we hope to hear you tune in for the next one. Have a great day, everybody.